turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew. We continue to work through the Beatitudes. We finish up the Beatitudes today, actually, in Matthew 5. And as you turn there, if you want to kind of also turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and maybe just put your thumb there or a piece of paper or something, we will kind of bounce back and forth a good bit this morning between Matthew 5 and 1 Peter 3 and 4. How deeply have you thought about the words we just sang? The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Have you thought about that before? Why, why even so? Why in that moment? Even so. It's still well with my soul. Why? I'm reminded of the book of Revelation. It tells of the coming of the Lord. Armies of heaven. Armies of the Lord coming in behind Him. He comes to claim His own and to judge the wicked. In that moment when the, cra- the clouds are rolled back, I was talking with, with one of you this weekend at a, a wedding we were at in Louisville, and we were looking at the clouds and the, the brightness coming out from around some of the clouds that the sun had cast, and talking about, what will it be like? What will it be like? And the Lord returns. And I don't know, but when those clouds are rolled back like a scroll, and the Lord of all creation the Lamb of God, the warrior Messiah comes with the armies of heaven. There will be some who look in holy terror and fear in that moment. And there will be others who say, even so, it is well with my soul. (laughs) It is well. It is well. Well, let's get into Matthew 5 today. I wonder as we begin Matthew 5 and we turn to the last of the Beatitudes focused on persecution, I wonder if you recall the account, you don't have to turn there, just recall for a moment the account in, in Acts 5 when you know, there, there had been this great movement of the Lord and, and many were coming to faith in Christ and, and many wonders and, and great works were being done through the apostles and as the, the church is being built and more and more following Christ, there, there's more of the establishment continues to be unsettled, so much so that in chapter 5 we, we see where Peter and the apostles are all brought into prison. They're all in prison. They're all brought before the authorities. And, and they're, told, they're told not to continue teaching, right? They're not to continue preaching this one Christ, which... Peter and the apostles answer, well, we must obey God rather than men. And they continue, and they, at that point, they give testimony of, of Christ and, and His death and God exalting Him as Lord and Savior, that He gives out repentance to those who trust in Him and the Holy Spirit to those whom follow the Lord, to those whom are saved. And so 
the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are enraged at this point. It says they are enraged and they wanted to kill them, but there is one among them that stays their hand and tries to talk to them and say, you know, let's, let's don't do that right now. Let's don't do that. So they convene, they talk, they decide not to kill the disciples at this point. And so we pick up and, and they, it says they took his advice in Acts 5, beginning in verse 40. It says they took his advice and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were beaten, they were imprisoned, and they were let go. And they leave, and they leave not ranting about what happened. They weren't posting on, I guess it would be scroll book at that time, right? They weren't tweeting out any tweets on carrier pigeons or whatever that would be. They weren't embittered, they weren't rebelling, they weren't complaining, they didn't come back and raid the leaders. No, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. Why? Why? How, how could they do that? How could they do that? It's because their perspective on persecution have been flipped upside down by Christ. Let's read the Beatitudes. Beginning Matthew 5, verses 3. Have any of you picked up on us kind of backdooring some Scripture memory on you? Right? You may have these memorized by now between hearing them every week and closing out the service every week. So today when we close out the service, the Beatitudes, see if you can say them without reading them. Probably pretty close by now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we come to this text, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, I, I would contend to you that, that this is not something new. This is not a moment where we should be surprised to read about persecution. Scripture is, is very clear about persecution in the life of believers. It's something that, that we should expect. So to hear these words necessarily should not shock us. Just for the sakes of your notes, if you want to take down these text, but I want you to hear the scriptural teaching on persecution. Matthew 10, verses 16 to 39, Jesus goes through a very extensive passage warning the disciples that persecution would indeed come on his behalf. He says that they would be delivered over to courts. They would be flogged in synagogues. They would be dragged before governors, 
hated because of him, that they would be maligned. In Matthew 24, 9 through 13, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. In John 15, Jesus says, verse 18 to 21, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, you, or if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Then we turn to Romans. Paul's message is the same in Romans chapter three or chapter five, verses three to five. He says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. He's talking about physical sufferings that are being encountered on, on behalf of, of the government and those who are not believers. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He writes in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4, Paul writes, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know. Then we're reminded certainly of James chapter 1. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, know, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I, I simply want you to see that this passage, these words from our Lord this morning in, in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, they are not an isolated text. This is not one moment in time where Jesus says, you know what, by the way, I think you may get persecuted. There may be times of difficulty. There may be times of trial. But this is something that fits in the whole of the testimony of Scripture. That those who pursue righteousness will be persecuted. It will be difficult. So when Jesus says this in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, he does not introduce us to persecution. But instead, what he's doing is he is flipping our perspective of persecution. He's turning it upside down. He's radically changing it. He's, he's helping us to see that, that the follower of Christ is blessed when they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Really, if you think about it, it's kind of this, this unexpected climax to the Beatitudes. I mean, he's already talked about the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. 
as being blessed. But now he comes and he says, and you know what? Not only that, not only are those somewhat surprising, but let me go ahead and really shock you that those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, they indeed are blessed. And the interesting thing here is as he goes through, the Greek changes tenses. And it goes to a tense that stresses a reality that is in the past and in the present. And so what scholars think is the reason that the tense changes there is because Jesus is speaking to people who are already being persecuted. They've already experienced it. They've already seen the persecution that comes from following him, from sitting there and listening and and submitting to his teaching, listening to his teaching. There's already some persecution that's been upon them, or perhaps simply the fact that they are seeking after righteousness that is from God has brought them persecution. Regardless, they surely are those who are sitting there thinking, persecution is something that I want to avoid. It is not enjoyable. It's not something I want. Jesus does not say, well... I want you to have fun with persecution. I want you to seek after it. He does not say that. We're never told to seek after persecution, to run to it, to hope it comes upon us. But what we are told is that it will indeed come, and we need to be ready, and we need to know that we are blessed in the midst of persecution for righteousness' sake. So today what I want to do is I want to give you kind of four points, four things to consider. The first one we're going to look at is the reason for persecution. The reason for persecution. Then we'll look at the status of the persecuted. And then after that, we'll look at our response to persecution and then finish up with the promise to the persecuted. So that'll give you some headings to, to trace through as we go through today's text. First, let's think about the reason for persecution. What, what is the reason, according to Christ, for persecution? Blessed are those who are persecuted, what? For righteousness' sake. It is righteousness. The reason for persecution is righteous living. It comes as a result of the Christian's desire to live as God has called him to live. The commentator John Stott said that those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the very righteousness that they crave. That which we long for is actually what is going to bring persecution upon us. Listen, we live in a day, and I would say many of us have have fallen into this and are either sitting there now or have come out of it, where we think and we have in our mind that if I live as a good Christian, life will be easy. Everyone's going to like me. Everyone's going to agree with me. And the reality is that is not true. Being a good Christian does not equal having an easy life. Scripture does not lead us to think that. It does not lead us to, to believe that and to run after that and go, hey, if I, if I just am a good Christian, then that's a good deal. I, I, everybody's going to like me. Everybody's going to agree with me. And my life's going to be easy. We need to know. We need to count the cost of following Christ. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, the, the text that, that Mike read this morning for us. 1 Peter 3, I guess we don't really need to read the entire text together again But when we look at verses 8 through 17 and then even into 18, where he makes a statement about who Christ is and and what he did, we see Peter writing to a people who are persecuted, a people who are being persecuted for their faith because they are pursuing Christ. In verse 13 to 14, he, he asks them a question. He says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who's there to harm you? Who who will bring harm upon you? Who's going to do it? Who's going to harm you in such a way that it steals away your faith, that steals away the certainty of what you have in Christ? Who's going to do it? 
Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Do not fear the one who can, can hurt the body only, Christ has said. But what, what gives Peter the ability to say what he says here? When he writes them, he, he writes and he says, who's there to harm you? Well, he knows the truth of verse 12. Verse 12, this section, verse, um, uh, verse 10 through 12, is a quote, a citation of Psalm 34. We looked at Psalm 34 last week, a brief por- portion of it. Verse 11, we looked at where Psalm 34 says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We talked about that we as peacemakers should be seeking peace, right? Something we long after, something we want. Well, Peter knows that verse 12, he knows the truth of Psalm 34, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter understands that. He knows that. And so he writes them. He says, listen, who is there to harm you? If you're zealous for doing good, who's really going to take that away? If you're a follower of Christ, who is going to steal that away? Who's going to pull you from the the grasp of God? No one. No one can pull you out of the grip of God Almighty. Jesus talked about that in John 10, verses 27 to 30. There's no one strong enough to pull you from the grip of God. So why would you worry about it? They can't hurt you. They can't harm you. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. But instead, instead, right, this classic passage that we think about with apologetics is is crouched in the idea of persecution and the idea of suffering but in your hearts honor christ the lord is holy always being prepared what to make a defense for the hope that you profess the hope that is in you but do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered not if you're slandered but so that when you are slandered those who revile you revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now listen to what he says in verse 18. What is the foundation for this? What lies beneath the call for us as followers of Christ to suffer well for the glory of God. What, what lies is the foundation for us to pursue righteousness and to live for God in such a way that when suffering comes upon us, we endure and persevere through it with no fear, with no trouble in our hearts because we are honoring Christ the Lord as holy. What gives us that ability? What lies at the root of it? That's what he says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The work of Christ on the cross is the very foundation for why we pursue him and why we live in him, the confidence that we have to walk and journey through suffering as it comes. When persecution comes, our confidence is in Christ who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteousness, that he might bring us to God. He is our hope. He is our confidence. That's why you have the question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, what is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own. 
but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is my hope in life and death, is that I belong to Him, that He has saved me. Why did He suffer? That He might bring us to God. That He might reconcile us. Remember, we talked about that last week. That He is the great peacemaker. He brought about reconciliation. He has brought restoration between us and God. And so because of that, our confidence, our hope is in Him. We read in Isaiah 51, 7 and 8. We, we read Isaiah, the, the Lord says this, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their re- re- revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. There is nothing, there is no amount of persecution that steals away your salvation through Christ. There's nothing that pulls that away from you. We hold fast to the Lord. Our confidence is Him. He is our hope in life, in death, in persecution, in peace. He is our hope. And and it's the same thing that God said in Isaiah 51. He says, do not fear the reproach of man. Reproach of man. Don't be dismayed at their revilings. Why? Because the moth is going to eat them up like a garment. They will not endure. They will not last. Their end will come. Their end is sure. But His righteousness endures forever. His salvation to all generations. His salvation endures. It endures. So here's a question then. If the reason for persecution is righteousness, why does righteousness bring persecution? Why why would pursuing righteousness cause you to be persecuted as a believer i think there's there's two reasons one is that it it challenges both evil and moral indifference i think that's the first thing is it just it challenges evil and moral indifference someone who is living ungodly and you're living godly someone who is living in unrighteousness but you're pursuing righteousness it challenges that it confronts that it's at odds with that But it also challenges and confronts those who just live morally indifferent. They don't really care. They're not necessarily pursuing evil. They're not pursuing unrighteousness. They just don't really care. They're just going about life. They're indifferent morally. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. But yet, you pursue righteousness. You're pursuing truth. You're pursuing holiness. And it challenges that. I think that's the first reason. The second reason is that if you're pursuing righteousness, it means you're pursuing something other than what unbelievers around you are pursuing. In essence, you're going against the flow. You're not going along with the tide. You're traveling the opposite direction of the rest of traffic. And so living according to kingdom values as a citizen of heaven puts you in contrast to those who are living according to the values of our society. Which begs the question, do I live more for the righteousness that God has revealed to us in Scripture? Am I living for holiness? Am I pursuing holiness? Or am I just living according to the society, the values of our society? Which one am I living more according to? Or maybe another question that we could ask is, am I more likely to bring persecution upon myself for my political stance or for my unwavering desire to follow Christ? Which one is more likely to bring persecution upon me? My opinion about COVID? Or 
my desire to pursue Christ? Which one is more likely to bring persecution? Which one am I running harder after? So the reason for persecution is righteousness. Second, the status of the persecuted. What is the status of the persecuted? Those who are persecuted for righteousness say, well, it's blessed. Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he says down in, in verse 10 and 11, he says, um, or sorry, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Re- revile? Really, God? Like, when they insult me and when they berate me and when they despise me, persecuted? Like, when, when my freedoms are taken away? When, when I'm not allowed to advance my career because of my faith? When I'm not allowed to go to that school or to pursue that degree because of where I stand in my faith or because I don't affirm a certain narrative of society? Friends, that is not far off. If you think that will never happen here, you need to wake up. You need to wake up. That's coming down the pipe. It's very close that if I don't conform to a very specific narrative in our culture, that there are things that I will not be able to do. When you're reviled against, you're persecuted, or when people speak against you falsely, really? I'm blessed that when, when people make rumors up about me, when they accuse me of something I did not do, when they accuse me of being a liar, when they accuse me of being a cheater, when they accuse me of being a crook, but I'm not. They accuse me of all those things, Lord. You're saying that I'm blessed? Really? Yeah. Why? Because it's for the sake of Christ. It's because righteousness' sake. It is not enjoyable. It is not something we seek. It is not something I hope for. I don't walk around going, man, I really hope someone would revile me and berate me and persecute me and speak evil against me this week. That's not something I'm hoping will happen. But it is something that will happen. It is something that will happen. And historically, it has indeed been a mark of God's hand upon the lives of his people. And we see it all the way back in the Old Testament. That's why he says in in verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Why? For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is not anything new. Jeremiah was put in stocks. He was threatened to be killed. He was imprisoned and thrown in a cistern. And then you have Zechariah, who was stoned to death. Prophets of the Lord, speaking on behalf of the Lord, and they're persecuted. You see, this is the point at which the whole idea of persecution is flipped upside down. It's one thing to go, this is awful, it's terrible, I don't want it. Yes, indeed. But it's another thing to say, we know it's awful, we know it's terrible, we know we don't want it, but it is a sign of God's blessing. It is blessed. You are blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. This tans, stands totally in contrast to our society. Our, our society says what? That the sign of blessedness is what? That you live comfortably, that you have things easy, that you live in safety that you have all the modern conveniences you could possibly want. That's the sign of blessedness. 
But yet, Jesus has said, you know what? There's nothing material about a sign of my blessedness. There's nowhere in the Beatitudes that he says, blessed are those who got $1,000 because they gave 100 There's nowhere in there he talks about a sign of blessing being material goods. What does he say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is blessing from the Lord. And it stands in contrast to our society. It stands in contrast to our culture. A guy named Rod Dreher, in a book he published last year called Live Not By Lies, he notes that four out of five young adults say that self-fulfillment is the key to a good life. Self-fulfillment. He says that the rising generation has little capacity for suffering. Why? Because they've been taught that the good life is a life free from suffering. It's the easy life. Good life equals easy life. They've been bought, they've they've been sold a lie, and they've bought it. That Christianity is void of difficulty and tears. It is not. And I think part of the responsibility for that is sitting here among us as adults that we have bought into that. And we are passing that message down to the next generation, to the teenagers and children sitting in in our midst, that everything you strive for needs to be comfort and safety and the good life described by the USA. That is not what we're called to pursue. We're called to pursue righteousness there is a cost to following christ we need to count the cost and ask are we willing to pay the cost are we going to pick up our cross and follow jesus it will not be difficult it may be i mean it will not be easy it may be very difficult listen teenagers children you need to know that following Jesus is not always easy. It is not always easy. It will be difficult. And it will bring persecution to your life. If you follow Him and you pursue righteousness, and the days ahead, the days ahead, do not look like they're getting easier. They don't look like they're getting easier. If you're going to pursue Christ, it is not going to get easier. Comfort is not your goal. Safety is not your goal. The easy life is not your goal. Christ is your goal. Christ is your goal. Value and esteem and pursue Him. Run hard after Him. Pursue righteousness. Exalt Him. Live for Him. It is not easy. But here's what you need to know. is He is absolutely worth it. He is worth it. He is valuable. And there's nothing and no one who can take Christ from you. Nothing. No one. Pursue Christ. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4. I hope you didn't move your thumb. 1 Peter 4, verses, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. We just meditate on this. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. To test you as though something strange were happening to you? (laughs) Isn't that that kind of where we are? What in the world? People don't like us because we're Christians. (laughs) Really? Peter says, hello, 21st century American Christians, 
Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. You think this is strange, that people wouldn't agree with where you stand with the Lord? It's not strange. It's an all throughout history. All throughout history. He says, but rejoice, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed and let him glorify God in that name. For it is Time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Listen, we, I guess if you look at the history of the United States, we're coming out of a period in which really not a lot of persecution here for a believer. Maybe made fun of here and there, maybe reviled, maybe slandered, perhaps, you know, gossip. It's been fairly light. You know, my fear, I shared this with one of the pastors this morning, is we come to texts like this, that we hear persecution, and we go, oh yeah, that's just over there. It's just across the pond. It's on the other side of the world. Maybe even across the border in Canada where pastors are being in prison. It's there. It's not here. And we tune it out. That's my fear. And... and And the reality is, is when we look ahead, we look at the trajectory of our society, it is absolutely headed to a difficult day. We're going to be talking about that tonight in our grace equipping class. It's headed to a difficult day. And Peter just says, don't be surprised when it comes. But rejoice. Does this sound, does this ring a bell, verse 13? Does that ring a bell at all? Why would Peter say that? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Does that ring a bell? Acts 5, do you remember? What do they do? They get beaten, they're released, and what do they do? They rejoiced insofar as they had been kind of worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. Peter's now writing that, saying, listen, I know, I understand, I've been there. Now rejoice when it comes upon you. Rejoice. Grace Baptist Church, when it comes upon you, don't be shocked, don't be surprised, but rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad in Him. Don't be surprised that you suffer in verse 12. But know that your faith is being refined as in fire. Proverbs 27, 21 talks about silver and gold being refined by fire. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 16, fire tests the work of our lives. God uses difficulty in our lives to refine us and to draw us close to Him. Don't be surprised by that. But make sure, at the same time, verse 15 and 16, he says, make sure you're not suffering for your own sinfulness. Don't just go and live your life in a way of sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness and then complain when you go through difficulty. 
He says, that, that's not it. We're not called to just live in sin and then get upset that, that, that we're punished. Tom Schreiner notes, he says, Peter knew how easily people can rationalize punishments that are deserved and explain them as Christian suffering. The admonition here reminds us that the early Christian churches were imperfect, just like we are. Believers were still prone to sin, and hence they needed exhortations to encourage them to walk in godly pathways. We need that encouragement and that exhortation constantly, that we would be called to live for righteousness' sake, that we would live for Christ, we would pursue Him. But he says in verse 16, But when you suffer, do not be ashamed when it is because you are a Christian, but let, let Him glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed in that moment. Don't be ashamed. But know that you are blessed. Why? Verse 14. Why are you blessed? If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Does that, does that not make you just, just smile to read that? If you're hearing all this persecution, you're saying you're blessed. God, how am I blessed? Well, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God is with you. God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you. So we have the reason for persecution, the status of the persecuted. And third, we have the response to persecution. What is the response to persecution? It's rejoicing. It's rejoicing. We've seen that littered throughout where we've been, that, that we are called to rejoice in our persecutions. Verse 13 and 14, we rejoice in suffering because we know it's a blessing. We share in the sufferings of Christ. The suffering of Christ is a cause for joy. It's a cause for joy as we know that it's part of being a Christian. Listen, essentially what we see here is that, that we not only experience future joy, but we also experience the, pre- experience the present blessing of God. You are blessed. Why? For yours is the kingdom of heaven. We have the special presence of the Spirit of the Lord upon us. We understand that we're blessed. That does not mean necessarily comfort, safety. Do you see the, where it just kind of starts hitting at odds with the message of our society? Persecution doesn't mean that everything is going to be comfortable, everything's going to be safe, everything's going to be just easy and, and going well and, and prosperous at all times. But here's what persecution does. Persecution reveals what we most value in life. It reveals what we most value in life. If we, if we esteem our own comfort and our own safety and our own security, our own stuff above everything else, then we are going to avoid persecution at all costs. So if I esteem all of those things, I will do whatever it takes to avoid persecution. I will keep my mouth shut. I will hide my Christianity. I will stop going to church. I will not share the gospel. All to avoid persecution. All to avoid. However, if I esteem Jesus Christ above all, if I esteem Him above all else, then I will magnify Christ regardless of the cost. If it's persecution, so be it. Because I exalt Christ and I magnify Him and I esteem Him, I value Him above all else. There's no greater treasure in my life. 
I treasure him. And if I treasure him above all else, then everything else can be taken away. And I'm still going to magnify him. I'm still going to exalt him. I'm still going to praise his name. I'm going to be like the disciples. They're thrown in prison and they're singing. I'm going to rejoice in sufferings. Why? Because I understand that the blessing is not in the persecution itself, but is in the fact that I am Christ and he is mine. That is the reason for blessing. It's the reason for blessing. So the response is rejoicing in the midst of persecution. It's rejoicing. Finally, the promise. The promise to the persecutor. What is the promise to the persecutor? The promise to the persecutor is that your security, your inheritance is sure. It is secure. Your inheritance is sure. The promise to the persecutor is sure. In verses 10 and 12 of Matthew 5. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for your reward is great in heaven. Clement of Alexandria, he, he kind of reworded it. He said this, Happy they that have been persecuted for my sake, for they shall have a place where they shall not be persecuted. <laughs> you may be persecuted now, but there you need to know you have a place where you won't be persecuted. It's there. It's certain. It's sure. John Stott says, We may lose everything on earth, but we shall inherit everything in heaven. Everything. We have a certain inheritance. We have a sure inheritance. Christians, we look forward to eternity because our greatest prize is not worldly pleasure and worldly comfort and worldly stuff, but we look forward to heaven because our greatest prize is Christ. He is our sure reward. That's who we long for. It's who we look to, and that cannot be taken away. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is is the kingdom of heaven we talked about that when we began with poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the the certain and the present blessings of that and he directs our gaze to there again that when you endure persecution when when you go through persecution you need to know that as a believer yours is the kingdom of heaven i remind you what what peter wrote in first peter one i think first peter is so relevant when you think about persecution obviously that's why we're there all the time this morning 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What's that have to do with persecution? Well, here's what it has to do with it. Peter says, in this you rejoice. What he just said, our salvation, by according to God's great mercy, saved to a living hope through Jesus Christ, his resurrection for the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We rejoice in what God has done and because of what God has done, what he has saved us to, the secure and sure inheritance that he has given us in Christ and the hope, the living hope of the resurrection, then we endure trials. 
the promised inheritance that we have been given helps us persevere through times of persecution. That is the importance of knowing that our security is in Christ. That our inheritance is sure in Him. We can endure through persecution because we know that there is never a day in which we encounter um, or a moment of time that we come upon where we do not have Christ. Where He is stolen away from us. So our brothers and sisters around the globe who sit in a prison cell, who sit by themselves today, they are not void of the presence of Christ. Jesus has not been taken away from them. Their Bibles may have been taken away from them. Their freedom may have been taken away from them. But their Savior has not. Their inheritance has not. And if that comes upon us, the same is true for us. So I think here's the question. Here's the question we have to consider in closing. Is how am I preparing today for persecution tomorrow? Uh, how am I preparing today for persecution tomorrow? If we, if we look and we don't have our heads in the sand, we actually are looking and just watching the news and watching the trends of culture and the directions of things and societies and the narratives and all those things. How do we prepare? How do we prepare? I would say first is, you need to guard yourself from clinging too closely to the things of this world. Don't get too attached. Don't hold on to your stuff like this. Hold it like this. Don't cling too tightly to the things of the world. Second, I would say hide God's word in your heart. Hide God's word in your heart. Interview after interview with Men and women who are persecuted, who are imprisoned and taken away for their faith, who suffered through totalitarian rule and communist Europe, time and time again, it was the word that they had hidden in their heart that they clung to. Know your Bible. Cling to the truth. Learn it. Hide God's word in your heart. Third, I would say, fan your affections for the Lord. Fan your affections for the Lord. Do you, do you love Jesus? And what is the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God. You love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment is not that you walk into church with all your outfit in order and your hair fixed, and your church face on. That's not the greatest commandment. That does not sustain in times of persecution. The greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Fan your affections for the Lord. Next, I would say we need to be prizing obedience and God's glory above comfort and self-fulfillment. Prize obedience and God's glory above comfort and self-fulfillment. If you're living all of your life driving towards what makes you most comfortable and is most self-fulfilling, then the day of persecution is going to be very difficult. Very difficult. Fifth, I would say resolve today. Resolve today that you will stand firm in the gospel tomorrow. We see that in Daniel. I think Daniel's a beautiful example. 
says he resolved in his mind. He resolved in his mind that he would not. He would not pursue the ways of the king, but he would pursue the ways of his king. That's Todd's paraphrase. But he resolved. And I say we need to resolve today that I am going to stand firm in the gospel tomorrow by the grace of God and the strength of God. And then finally, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness today. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness today. Above all else, seek Christ. Seek his righteousness. I want to leave you with the words this morning. The Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer died in April of 1945, just before the camp he was imprisoned in was liberated, days before he was martyred for his faith. He wrote this, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. That's why Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of His grace. Let's pray.